All right, everybody, welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. Happy 2020 to you. I'm very excited because our first interview and conversation of the year is with the very talented artist, Deb Lee. And she is currently based out of the San Francisco area, working with Lyft as an illustrator. But her accolades and her accomplishments go much further than that. In fact, she has a book forthcoming in the fall of 2021, in addition to other authors that she's illustrated and worked with as well. Uh, Her work has been featured in HarperCollins, NPR, Radiolab, uh, Macmillan Publishers, Scientific American, and on and on and on. Uh, Deb, thank you so much for taking a moment to uh, join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to go, go ahead with this. It's, it's quite precarious. You know, we met through one of these creative groups uh, online and I was struck yeah. by um, the, the project that you're working on. Now, I know it's not out yet, but could you give us a little bit more mm-hmm. of a background on why you're doing a graphic novel about this subject matter? Sure. So, I mean, this whole process kind of started out as, I don't want to say it started out as an accident. Um, So I just got into publishing by accident, really. Like I was just, I wanted to be an editorial illustrator for a while, like just illustrate for NPR or the New York Times one day. Um, And I got this scholarship and from the Society of Illustrators in New York, which to me was a complete surprise because I wasn't even an illustration student. And that's actually how my literary agent found me currently. And we started working. He was like, oh, do you want to, have you ever thought about working in publishing? And I said, like, honestly, uh, not not quite, but I, I'd be willing to try it out. Um, so we started working on a picture book called Koi Girl. And we it was going along. I was uh, I graduated from college and I was working at NPR at the, at the time as an illustration intern. So I was just really tired. I would just like go home and work on this picture book to pitch to editors. And in the fall, I started working at LinkedIn and in the Bay Area as a as an illustrator. I guess yeah. um, it's complicated, but I I I just got this feeling that I wasn't really getting in Pittsburgh where I went to school or New Jersey, which there's so many Asians here. Like, I I mean, there's so many Asians at the school that I went to, but there was this feeling where suddenly I was kind of an outsider, Hmm. like growing up in a Korean family, like you kind of like, I, I I feel like once, you know, one Korean person, you kind of know all the (laughs) Korean population. You know what I mean? Like I can tell you, tell you, I can tell you so many stories where, I don't know, like some girl from my art class knew a girl from Buddhist camp from like 10 years ago that I happen to know. It's insane. But um, yeah, so I made a comic about it and it actually kind of went viral on Twitter. Like it was like retweeted by some pretty cool people and that's how it just kept going around. And my agent saw that and he goes like, hey, this was a really good comic. Like I didn't know you were into comics. And I said, you know what? I didn't know Hmm. either, but I liked it. And he goes like, what if, have you ever thought about making a graphic novel? And I said, wow, that's like 300 pages, (laughs) but I'll, I'll, I'll I'll do it. I guess. Like, I mean, I, I just have so much emotional baggage that, you know, I, I just thought would be good to just, you know, write and illustrate for, a couple years so we made a pitch 
together. Like I, we kind of um, stopped working on Koi mm. Girl, um, and we just went full speed ahead with this pitch. Which um, I made a synopsis. I made fifteen pages, which uh, was in that group that I put um, that where where we found each other, and he sent it off to um, for submission to a bunch of publishing houses, and Macmillan was one of them. And they really, really liked it. And I ended up getting, I ended up working with, um, signing a contract with the editor that, who edited some of the memoirs that I found inspiration in. So that was just an insane, it was just insane. Like this, there was a chance, there was a huge possibility where none of this could have happened. And I don't know. I hope that answered your question. It was a very long story. <laughs> well, that's the whole point. And then I think what what I really yeah. appreciate is your candor, not only in the conversation we're having today, but also in a lot of your work. You know, you mentioned that there's a lot of baggage that you need to unpack. And you know, for me, so this is a, this podcast. So yeah, much this podcast baggage. is really a, kind of a healing a healing um, act for me as well in order to kind of get yeah. out not only my own stories, but you know, the whole intention of doing this was to create a platform so that others could feel that they were not alone whenever they, they found themselves in yeah. a situation that was, you know, awkward, not ideal. I think no matter what generation you identify with Z, X, Y, one, two, three, everybody feels these, these uh, notions of not fitting in, of feeling outside, um, I know for myself, you know, I've moved a lot as well, you know, eight different times, seven different schools. Oh my God. You know, every time you go to a new place, you got to kind of size up how the kids are, how do they dress, what do they watch, how do they talk, um, how do they view you, how do you adapt? So, um, wow, you know. yeah. It, have you ever, um, have you ever like, I, I don't know like what the because I know for I guess the quote girl culture in elementary schools like all the popular kids would be interested in you for like maybe a week and then they just completely abandon you and it's it's the worst but I don't know what that was like for you it was it similar um, you know I'm I'd be curious to see how much we have commonality given the different regions you live but for <laughs> myself you know being Vietnamese American first generation everything we didn't even have that term at that time right um, I would go, really? I would go okay. to, you know, a predominantly Caucasian and white school, typically be the only, oh, yeah. the only Asian kid there. And, you know, you'd have your occasional epithets, but before that even happened, you're right. I think for a few days, you'd be a curiosity, but if you weren't like a cool new kid, you'd immediately kind of get put just, in yeah, like that just, other category. Throw you off yeah. The yeah. So I was wearing like my <laughs> uncle's old. Funny. Uh, I mean, this would be really like if Instagram was a thing back then, and I knew how to pose for pictures, maybe it would have been cool. But I was wearing like my uncle's old ass <laughs> clothes. Uh, I had patches, oh uh, mismatched shoes. I mean, I stole clothes from the lost and found. I mean, it was it was not oh not gosh. a great experience Badass. being a new kid. Yeah. Yeah, I. Um... I mean, I feel like patches are kind of cool, cool now. now. Like, they're back in. <laughs> they're cool now. Like the whole, men, uh, yeah, like mending and like upcycling clothes is really huge yeah, now. Yeah, it's having a moment. So I don't know. You're you were ahead of your time, I guess. Yeah. I mean, what was or it your, like for you? Maybe your uncle was. Yeah, what was it like for you going to different schools, different cities, you know, different contexts? How did you adapt? Oh, my God. Um, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't adapt. Um, I mean, 
the majority of moving around happened um, all the way, like, I would say from when I was born to maybe until I was 10. Um, That's when all the moving happened. And it was just from Korea to New Jersey, not New Jersey, uh, New York, Manhattan, when I was like three, um, New Jersey, Alabama, and then back to Jersey, but like a more white part of New Jersey. Um, I mean, I don't know. It was interesting because that time of anyone's lives is when you are learning how to socialize when you're learning how to get along with kids. So I felt like I missed out on a lot of that. Um, when I moved from New Jersey to Alabama, I, I think I got into survival mode where if I wanted to fit in, I had to forget all the Koreanness that's part of me. So I forgot how to speak Korean. Like I can't, I can barely speak Korean anymore without this gross American accent that <laughs> all my relatives kind of laugh at, but in a way that they think is cute. Um, it's not cute to me, but anyway, um, so I mean, Alabama is just like you every other day or every, I don't, I mean, it feels like so it happens so fast, but it felt like every other day, like someone would be like, why are you, why are your eyes so small? Or the famous question, are you Chinese or Japanese? And I, have you ever gotten that? It's the worst question. Um, my brother would get that, but my brother went to private school um, because my mom wanted him to go to school earlier. Uh, the cutoff date was different. So he told me that this kid, <laughs> this is um, kind of an aside, but this kid went up to him and he goes like, where are you from? And my brother, a preschooler said, I'm from Korea. <laughs> and, and, and the boy was like, there's no such thing as Korea. Oh no. And, my brother being the sassy asshole that he he is um goes uh yes it is like go ask your teacher or something and the boy says like okay i will and he comes back the next day and goes i hate you (laughs) (laughs) um i love it's one of my favorite stories um but yeah no alabama like i i like didn't really i like played outside like very like not too often like I my mom actually kept me indoors to do some math problems like she would actually order textbooks from ironically Macmillan to um, I know I'm full (laughs) circle (laughs) and uh, she would have me do all the chapter books like all the math problems there that like if I was in first grade she would make me do the second grade Mm -hmm. one and etc so I was super I, I guess I was pretty ahead um but I didn't have a single play date for three years, I think. Mm. So from like age six to age like eight or nine. Yeah. So I just didn't know how to socialize with kids. Um, so when I moved back to New Jersey, I was living in a more like, I was living in an area or I guess my parents are still there, but we lived in an area that was like super white, like super like rich kids like wall street kids Hmm. um and there was not only like racism there's also uh not sexism but classism um so and the education system was like very ahead from you know where i came from so i was actually like slightly behind the kids Hmm. now instead of being ahead of the kids so i had to i was like put in like in one of the lower math classes in middle school and I kind of made my way up a little higher and higher every year Mm. 
Um, but no, I, I didn't know how to socialize. And I had a couple of friends, one of them whom I'm very close to still today. But I, I don't know. I just never knew if, you know, like when you do something wrong and if you do something wrong and someone doesn't really tell you it's wrong. So you keep doing the thing over and over and over again and it gets really bad and then you find out way too late. So that happened to Mm. me where I would say something really mean to my friend, my then friend as a joke and she would laugh it off and I would say it over and over again. And then like, and then one day she, it got so bad. She just stopped coming to school and I had no idea. So I had no, like, it was just very socially unacceptable. Um, like, I just didn't know what was wrong or right. So that's something that, you know, happened. And it took me years and years to kind of catch up with other kids to, you know, understand how to interact with other people. So, but yeah, um, it was just, it's just an interesting environment. Like, I, like, looking back, the... I heard like I remember hearing a lot of stories about kids who would or kids parents who would tell other parents like oh don't hang out with this family because they used to live in a townhouse like stuff like that like actually has been said Um, or people have uh, moved out because there are too many um, there are too many Indian kids like I know that happened too and um, this, this what didn't happen to me, but a friend of mine who is Latina, her, um, I don't, like, let me like, let, stop me if I'm like telling too many anecdotes. No, not at all. I, I think <laughs> like, it paints, uh, like, um, I think it paints a very vivid picture about, you know, just the, the lived experiences, because I think nowadays, I think it's very easy to characterize people when you just look at them, you know, you look up their website, you look up their social media, you look at their work and you think, oh. This yeah. is a person who, who just, you know, naturally is just very creative, very artistic. Maybe they had a hard life. Maybe they didn't. Um, I'm just going to mm-hmm. put them in this box and I'm not going to really think about what it took for this person to be who they are in order to channel their life experience through the mediums yeah. through which they express themselves. And I think these stories about either you or your friends or your classmates um, I do think that it it plays a big part. At least that's what I believe. You know, is that you know the the surroundings and the context through which we live, people we interact with, the culture we both inherit, and the ones we try to create for ourselves. It's like one really messy freaking cocktail that that kind of makes it all fit. Yeah. So no, I don't think you're oversharing at all. Okay, wait. Uh, I should probably finish the story because it's actually really really funny in the end. Um, but yeah, she my uh, this. This girl is Latina and she was in preschool and she was like talking to this like boy who is Caucasian and they found out like that their both their dads worked in the same company and the boy actually told her, Oh, um, my dad said that people like like you who work in our company are actually the janitors. Hmm. And it turns out Okay, get ready for this. It turns out that her dad was this boy's dad's boss. Isn't that insane? That's twist. I know. (laughs) I know. I I like if there's anything that needs a sequel, it's this. Like I don't know what happened after that, but I I wish I wish I knew. Maybe I can ask her. But 
yeah that's that's like a pretty accurate picture of what um the area I spent most of my life growing up in but I what you said about like you know the 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 what it took to you know like get to where I am like I I think a lot of that has to do with my parents and that even though we came to New York City we start even though we started living in a one bedroom apartment my dad was an intern at a hospital he I don't know how much money he was making but I'm assuming not a lot but it his medical practice grew and grew and we were able to afford now like we're able to afford a lot of things that we weren't able to before if in my I think in my observation I don't know if that's true uh, I'm pretty sure there was financial support from our family in Korea so because of that I was able to you know go to art classes we were able to afford um, a private university uh, that I went to so which you know like took me to tech and that gave me time to you know like save up money and then go do illustration for uh, freelance I actually um I actually quit I actually quit Lyft um pretty recently oh. so this is actually my third day <laughs> as a freelancer so I should have updated that so that's not your fault okay um so yeah no I like even though I when I people talk about like oh what was your artistic experience like I say you know, I didn't go to illustration school. I didn't have illustration resources. I figured that this out all my on my own. Like, it wouldn't have been possible without, you know, my my family support. Um, even though, even though we didn't get along on an emotional or like verbal, just like language barriers when I was growing up, like they were able to support me in design which I guess is a little close to illustration but you know not really so I'm very very thankful for them for providing these resources you know I think you bring up an interesting point is you know for myself raised by a single mother my mom did nails she never owned the shop but Mm -hmm. she you know she rented a station she's had a clientele that have followed her for a little over 30 years now it's pretty surreal Um, my mom told me back in the day hey you know instead of working all i work like four four part-time jobs in college she said instead of doing all that why don't you just learn how to do nails said mom you're crazy i can't do nails (laughs) and uh, i was very (laughs) close-minded i actually really enjoy talking to people and i think i would have done a decent uh pink and white and a french tip and shit but uh i i think it would have been good but i didn't and, uh, you know, now when I look back on it, I, I think, shit, you know, my mom raised two sons on her own. My dad was kind of an asshat and he wasn't around and mm-hmm. did a lot of bad stuff. And despite all that, she, to this day, is still working and um, has been able wow. to survive on her own. So I think, but that being said, that sometimes there is, even though she does speak English, you know, Vietnamese is her primary mm-hmm. language certain nuances that I've learned from acclimating and socializing to Western culture so well, I just don't know how to communicate into Vietnamese, even though I do speak it at a, I would probably say like an elementary school level. I can, I can seem polite to families and parents, but like you get like (laughs) a five-year-old kid that's been going to Vietnamese school, she or he is going to just talk me under the table in like two minutes. And then they, oh yeah, and then they're gonna read like a it's dissertation so- <laughs> and it's like with my ass. But it's 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 surreal, oh right? Gosh. Like the the things that can't be communicated 
to the people that are around you your whole life is, is really kind of amazing that we we still get through it. Like we know at the end of the day, this is our family and this is this is how it all got started. Are you um are are you able to understand Vietnamese but have trouble speaking it? Is that Yeah, I would I would say my okay. my my ability to to decipher what's happening when it's when it's being spoken to me definitely a lot better than my ability to say it back. It's interesting, yeah. right? It's the way so um when I try to describe this to other people who don't have this issue, I I kind of describe it it's sort of like seeing being able to recognize what good acting is. Hmm. You know, you watch TV and you say, "Oh, that's really good acting" or "That's terrible acting." But then someone pushes you up on stage to do good acting and it's impossible. Right. It's it's exactly like that. Um so that's or like being able to recognize being able to know what good singing is that's also something similar anyway yeah totally yeah um so you know i appreciate you sharing your context about you know the the, the family thing the support thing um so that being said i i wanted to bring up a little bit about my experience as well because i i feel like i'm coming from a different angle but i can see where you're coming from with that is that i think you know our families do the best that they can and everybody has a different situation and your definition of family could be different. Um, but I think after a certain point, you know, their, their expectations and their beliefs and their wants and their desires for you after a certain point, they kind of reach, they reach a threshold in which you then have to take uh, some control over your life. So I'm really curious, you know, how have your expectations or ideas of things as you were navigating and finishing college, going through these different opportunities that you mentioned earlier, how has that shaped your approach to your creative pursuits day to day? Because, you know, you didn't go through the, you know, the traditional outlet of going to school and really specializing in it. You kind of learned at it in your own way. I do. You, are you like talking about how my worldview impacted my art or yeah. how? Okay, sure. So, um, it's interesting because when I, 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 so I starting from square one, I, you know, had to like kind of scrap my idea of what an illustration industry kind of looks like mm. through like podcasts, you know, like these, um, just like going, just finding anything that I can just like digging and digging for resources. Um, I would, I found a couple alumni who actually made it into illustration and I would reach out to them and they would recommend other books and artists to check out. And that kind of, that branches out a whole picture of me, picture for me eventually of what, what it all looks like. So, but if you're talking about how my worldview impacts my art, like I, I, I've seen a couple worldviews, like I've seen what a worldview looks like in like a wealthy Caucasian neighborhood in New Jersey. I I also know what it looks like in the Asian American perspective, how it looks like in the deep South. So those are some pretty different worldviews, but I, I know I'm missing a lot of others, but just like interacting with other people, I've just met so many who just, you know, teaches me who taught me how to be kind and, stand true to what I what I believe in like my boyfriend has really been crucial in that I I think that kind of 
it's hard to say how that translated translates into my art um i would say in comics like i'm trying to come up with stories that you know aren't too depressing but have some kind of love and hope in them as well that's actually what happened with a graphic novel um the editors like the team at first second which is the imprint of macmillan publishers they were actually kind of worried that this book is like super dark like holy moly like i think one editor who got the submission said like we can't take this this is too dark <laughs> like so so training myself that you know the world the world has a lot of sadness and sometimes it feels like living has more pain than it has joy but the hope it's it's the hope that you know keeps us going you know like there's but i don't know i love really i love writing really really depressing stories like that's that's just what i every time i draw something happy it just feels wrong like i don't know how to, i don't know how to describe it i drew like someone i um i was trying to sketch out some warm-ups for characters in the book and i drew a couple of them happy and it just felt weird like i wanted to erase it like this doesn't feel right um i hope this answers your question i know i went in a very roundabout way no totally it's just yeah yeah it's it's interesting you know if you looked at my uh my zanga when it was still a thing it was filled with terrible terrible spoken word rap beat poetry Oh, man. <laughs> about my perpetual singleness, like, as if I were alone on this earth for uh, like 50 years. I was 13 at the time. I mean, that's a but Oh, my God. But, you know, I, did you have a SoundCloud? Uh, no, 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 no. It's, it's, oh, I man. did archive it's it. It's on a hard drive somewhere. But hidden away from hidden the world. Away from the world. Uh, <laughs> that being said, I, I am hoping to blog more now. Um, but I mean, even, oh, even with stuff I've talked about in this podcast before I started bringing on guests. I mean, a lot of it was stuff I was super embarrassed about. And, you know, when I would recount these stories to people that were close to me, I, I would add some levity to it. But, I mean, real talk, when I was going through the the muck and the shit of it, it was pretty god-awful, right? It was really bad. And, oh, it, and it hurt like hell. So I, I definitely get that, you know, I think the vehicle through which you express yourself, having some of that darkness is... It's not because you want people to feel sad. It's that, you know, I think there's a there's something within your creative process that allows you to channel something that is difficult for people to do. And I think that's a gift. Oh, thank you. I um, going back to what you're saying about, you know, when you're going through the pain, it's just the worst feeling in the world. Like it's the worst feeling in the world because it is your whole world, you know, like high school was, you know, my entire world when I was growing up because I didn't play a sport. I didn't like have clubs or I had art club, but it was just me. Um, (laughs) But the, the book has been changing a lot even right now, but I think one of the lessons at the end is about you need to like your world's about to get a whole lot bigger. Like you have to get ready for that. And you're going to like, if one world falls down, you're going to have other worlds who can carry you to. And that's something that I didn't really learn until end of college, honestly, that it's important to have more than one world that you feel a home in. So it's a, it's like a safety net, like a sweet, sweet safety net. Yeah. Well, 
you know, yeah. since we're on the topic of other worlds, you know, outside of what I do. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, yeah. But yeah. I would, uh, I would love to learn a little bit more about this uh, fantasy internet cult that you are oh, part of. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I you know, it. I mentioned to you when I said the question oh, over that I have a, I have a similar thing, but please, please share with us this experience. Holy shit. So you know how you said that you have your uh, sound, like not quite SoundCloud, but Sad rap, yeah. <laughs> freestyle, freestyle rap. I don't know. Pre- I don't predating know the sad um, rap genre. This <laughs> is like 2005. So yeah. Oh, that's super. Okay, that's that's yeah. insane. I love it. Um, what an energy. I uh, uh so it, it was one of those internet rabbit holes. Like you kind of just, you know how I don't know if Google still has this, but when you Google something, there's Google suggestions. Like oh, you Googled this. Like you Googled like dogs. What about like dog breeds or oh, yeah. which dog should I get, et cetera. So I went into this huge rabbit hole and I found like, I somehow ended up finding a community of like 30,000 people who they just all want to become like, I, I, honestly, the numbers probably go way higher than this, but just people who want to become fantasy creatures. Um, and it's very, it, it was very real. Like there were so many people who, have you ever heard of the website 43 Things? I have not. Okay. It's, it's gone now. So you probably will never hear about <laughs> it. Um, It's super gone, but it's like a goals, goals website. Okay. Um, You have a profile, you write down goals and people who wrote down the same goal can form a community together and um, like, cheer each other on and you know share your progress like i think the mo- the top one was write a book so you would find other people who would write a book and you would like work on it together mm. anyway there's a huge community for people who want to become fantasy creatures and there's a smaller community within that community where it was certain cults like i, I didn't want to call it a cult at the time but it's just people who there's this group of girls um who were around my age and it's confirmed i i'm actually still in contact with them they're real um i've actually met a couple of them in real life but yeah yeah no they're super cool i they're we're all healed and happy and over our trauma um from this but it i need a second um (laughs) that's okay basically there was a story that they made up that was almost like it came out of Lord of the Rings. Like there was this whole lore and it was like talking about, we were this family that were reincarnated from this parallel universe, like, like kind of like a, from like a Tolkien universe. And we need to find our way back and we need to find everybody first before we go back. And they were looking for like a couple other people. So I said, you know, what would be really funny is if I try to infiltrate this and see what happens. Hmm. And I did. And I got so sucked into it. It was, it, it took over my entire life. Like it was insane how much there was. There was like the history. There was all these, they actually mapped the world, the map of the world on top of the map of this parallel universe and found different ways of like, where the veil was thinner so you can actually travel into this world. So the nearest one 
from my house was Cape Cod, actually. Oh. So, yeah. So I was like, okay, I think I should go to Cape <laughs> Cod, but we never went to Cape Cod. Yeah. Um, but we had our own histories. Like each person had their own identities, their own like family drama, like their own symbols, I guess. So, you know how, um, so I was stuck in this for like three years, actually, just like a long ass time. And we were just talking every single day about figuring how to get back. And these girls, like the girls who started it all, like they're insanely smart. Like they're very smart. And it, it, it kind of saved some of our lives, honestly. Um, something that they said was you can't go back to this world if you die by unnatural circumstances. So suicide, like you can't go back if you try to commit suicide. And a lot of us were super depressed, like had not a great home life and not a great, um, not a great like school life either. didn't have a lot of friends. So, you know, we were kind of depending on this. Um, So a lot of us were really depressed. So that was a way that we were kind of, we kind of kept us alive. Um, but I don't know, as I talk about in the book, like I've attempted suicide like quite a few times. So it, but it was still, it was still something that really, really made me try not to go about it. Um, but anyway, um, every Halloween um, in folklore is when the veil between, I guess, the fairy world and the real world are, is the thinnest. So I, I don't know how we would go back, but it would just like, go to sleep. You'll be back the next morning. And, you know, of course it never happened. Right. Um, and over the years, I guess the people who started out the whole thing got like, I guess they had a better school life. So it was kind of also like, so did everybody else. Yeah. So it kind of distanced ourselves. And one day they were like, by the way, we made this all up. And all 15 of us were making like the surprise Pikachu face. Like what? No way. But yeah, um, 15, about 15 girls were roped into this for three years. We all thought it was real and it affected how we see the, the how we saw the world. Like it really just messed with my mind because I was just questioning reality like every single day. Like this is not real. Like none of this is real. And it just, I don't know, I guess I grew up very, very fast in a strange way. So, yeah, I mean, it made me reject my identity as, like, who I am right now. And it really did a number on me. And we never really got closure from that. And it wasn't until I um, I did, like, another interview with, uh you know, like the Procreate app on the iPad. Yes, I use it. Not well, yeah, but I do so, use it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It's good. Um, but they interviewed me about this too. And I like, I talked about it and, um, and then uh, they saw it and they asked, they, I got a little bit more closure from that. And honestly, when I talk about it with my therapist, she's like, this is very similar to how abusive relationships work. You know, like like yeah, when you have totally. when you feel like you have nothing else and like you're so malleable. I mean, of course, as eighth graders, like they had no idea what they're really doing, but it like it happened. And I wish I got more closure from that because it really, really, really affected our lives like so much. Um, as I mentioned, it just affected how we saw the world and the re- reality. And 
it's something that I want to incorporate more into my art about like what is real you know what like something like it might not be real but it's always real to somebody you know it's just a lot of deep weird philosophical stuff I hope I'm making sense right no, now. no you totally do and to okay. you know I really appreciate the the candor and the vulnerability of sharing that experience I know it was not easy going through it it it's not easy to do the work and heal from it. And, you know, when I say do the work, it's not as if it's a transactional thing, right? It's not a one, one time thing oh, no. to heal. So, you know, if not to minimize it, but to share my own experience, you know, you went through it oh, in middle school. It. I went through it graduating high school is when I got looped into something. Oh, shit. And uh, my, Uh-oh. you know, I tell it as a, a funny story, depending on who I'm talking to. And when I did a podcast right. episode about it. I, I tried to add some levity to it too. But the reality was I was very vulnerable, not only because, you know, I was going away for college, but at the same time, my grandmother was was fading fast, you know, right around the time I was graduating mm-hmm. high school. And she already had Alzheimer's and dementia and all this stuff. I was working at uh, In-N-Out, the, the burger place. It was my first job. My mom, yeah, yeah. my mom hooked it up through a family friend. And, you know, I worked my butt off peeling potatoes and hauling trash in order to adorn mm-hmm. myself in various Adidas track jackets that I bought off of eBay. And um, <laughs> Very good. The, Very reality, good. the reality of the situation was that, you know, I, I was vulnerable. I didn't think that, um, I didn't know what I was supposed to do when I got to college. I was the first time in my family to go. So, you know, the summer before, uh, this random guy that I kind of knew because I was, I was a, I was a dance geek. And when I say geek, it was because it's not, it wasn't cool like it is now where, you know, for me, it was like I went to the library and I learned about dancing and I like bootlegged some videos off of the LimeWire uh, and taught myself. Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. I was wearing like an old Kangol hat. It was not popping. Right. It was like <laughs> it was like the, the <laughs> corner, the corner of dudes who are like carrying around a little piece of cardboard and trying to do the robot while everyone's listening to Lil John and Ludacris and oh, Yin Yang Twins. It was just yeah. such a polar opposite from what what the the thing in vogue was at the time so this guy comes up to me along with some other folks who were you know they were pretty well uh, established you know smart students they they wanted to take me to a hotel in the middle of azusa Whoa. i don't know why the hell i said yes but i said yes what okay so we go into this uh hotel kind of conference room and there's like maybe 200 people there and there's like this kind of upbeat the upbeat kind of classical techno music, like boom, 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 but with like some cello, some okay. violin, a little bit of operatic shit going on. And uh, everybody sits down. I kid you not, everyone does the exact same thing at the same time. They all pull out a notepad at the same moment that this guy kind of rolls up to the front and he's kind of like a uh, multi-level marketing Jesus. Uh, the company was like a, a supplement company that also sold skincare and stuff. They show you this like goofy infomercial video. And uh, 20 minutes later, the guy comes back out and he's kind of whooping everybody up and they're getting super excited. And then the next thing I know, the all these chairs turn into a circle and then they're all facing me. And uh, oh, and then they they essentially get you to sign something. And essentially, you know, I was 18 at the time. I got held back in first grade. Uh, So it was a legally binding contract. So uh, they said, hey, look, we know that your grandma's sick. Uh, We know that, you know, you don't have a lot of money. Um, Because, you know, I 
I, I didn't lie about my situation when I was growing up. I, I told people around me what the reality was, um, but they used it against me. And they said, you know, this, this and that. Um, don't you want to be able to provide for your family? Don't you want your, your oh, grandmother no. to be healthier? Don't you want? Well, I said, of course I want that. He said, well, this is your gateway. All you got to do is sign this piece of paper, uh, bring in all the people you know, sell this amount of product, and then you'll get like $5,000 a month for the rest of your life until what? you die. And you'll be able to take care of your family. Like, don't you want that? And, you know, oh I thought God. I was a smart, smart uh, guy, but I, I said yes. And it was because I didn't realize until after the fact that they were employing a lot of very sophisticated um, rhetorical techniques, uh, psychological techniques mm -hmm. where they like, it's kind of like what Scientology does to you where they, they break you down, yeah. get you to tell all your secrets. And then you're, and then on top of that, they like deplete you of all your money. But since they're recruiting a bunch of broke 18, 19 year olds, what they do know is that you have friends or at least, you know, people, even if you don't have friends. So uh, cut a long story short, I, I went all in on this. Like my grandmother was still staying with us. So I, you know, I, I went home, I told my mom, my brother, my brother said, what, <laughs> why did you do this? <laughs> what? <laughs> the irony is that he also did some shit like this, uh, but him, okay. for him, it was like legal services for me it was his vitamins and stuff. My mom, uh, bless her heart. She convinced one of her customers to actually buy a fiber cleanse system. I mean, this shit was not cheap. It was like a hundred bucks. And it was, oh <laughs> it was essentially like 10 Nutrigrain oh bars Lord. for like a hundred bucks. And it was supposed to like help you lose uh, 10 pounds in a week. Wow. Um, and then I had like hella acne. Uh, I hadn't had a growth spurt yet. And so on top of the new, new the uh, supplements, you also had to do skincare. So then I didn't have a lot of clothes. So I had like this, um, the only dress shirt I had was like a lime green, like a key lime Kermit the Frog green dress shirt that I bought oh, from yes. Express. It's the shirt that's always on sale on Black Friday because no one wants to buy it. Oh, no. Okay. And then uh, I think I, yeah. I, I learned what Urban Outfitters was the senior year in high school. So I bought some like slacks oh. online on sale. It was like $10, but they were like bell-bottom pinstripe slacks. Um, okay. It was, it, was, it was a look. And I would... It's a, oh, it, I was going to say that's It's a look. A look. Yeah. It, it, it would be pretty fierce if you had like a, the right scarf or something now, I think, with like the tiny sunglasses or something. But... Um, Very Billy Eilish. So... I had a face full of acne. I had a shaved head and I went into like, you know, Inglewood, Long Beach into all these like, uh, have you heard of like a Tupperware party? No. What's so that? back in the day they would do Tupper, Tupperware? Tupper, Tupperware, like uh, the stuff that you hold like food containers. in container. So back in the day they okay. sold like high end <laughs> Tupperware at these parties. You just invite your neighbors and your friends over and they would buy directly from you. It's crazy. Um, but essentially, that's what we did, except we did these skincare parties where it's like we're like me with a face full of acne. I do a demo oh my gosh. and tell them, like, if you buy this, like, $500 skincare package, you'll have clear skin like me. But yeah, <laughs> I didn't have clear skin. Uh, so I was it was a it was a hot garbage fire of me trying to sell the product. But what I was good at was recruiting. Right. So, um, mm. you know, I, I got like. I think 10 or 15 dudes from my high school into this thing in a matter of like three months. Holy so even though I wasn't making any money for the dude above me, I was bringing in a lot of people to them. And, you know, if anybody ever mm -hmm. <laughs> listens to this, who was part of that group, I apologize profusely. Uh, oh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was young, I was naive. 
apparently I was good at it, but that doesn't mean it's right. Um, so anyway, you know, I did this and then I realized I was not only was I not making any money, but I was hemorrhaging money. So I, uh, what is that? I had, I was, uh, I was just bleeding money, just keeping this thing up and I had to keep working it in and out. So I would change out of my suit, my lime green shirt and my dress shoes to go put on a paper hat and a red apron and flip burgers and clean out the garbage cans to keep up this facade of this pyramid scheme kind of business going. And um, it, I don't know what snapped me out of it. I think it was, I think so every every Sunday we had to make this pilgrimage to this area of like the inland L- LA area called Azusa on this hotel on a mountaintop. And I was driving at the time this really shitty, uh, I love that car though, it lasted me five years with not that many issues. It was like a really dinky old Honda Civic with like hundreds of thousands of miles on it. And uh, it was, oh. I loaded that car full of people <laughs> to go to the, the mountaintop. And I think after they they ran out of money to keep doing it at that hotel, they started doing uh, these presentations in people's houses. So then uh, we were driving all around Orange County to these parties, these presentations. And then they, but even though they didn't have the money, the, the kind of multi-level marketing Jesus, his name was Duke, he would come out and he had like long lines, mane's hair, uh, these tiny kind of clear glasses, um, big, bright chiclet teeth, and then a Lamborghini. Amazing. And the Lamborghini had vanity plates. But I, I just remember uh-huh. the the fact that we kept doing this kind of cult-like ritual where everyone keeps taking notes about this thing that they already know what's going on. Um, and then the fact that the dude didn't know how to back out of the driveway in this Lamborghini that he supposedly owned. Like it just got more and more ridiculous, you know? And then yeah, at insult to injury, like I tried giving some of the supplements to my grandmother and like, obviously nothing happened. Um, and so I think I was about a week or two and before I had to start college and I just realized, Oh, I've been such a dumbass, right? I've, I've been such a fool to oh, have been yeah. tricked this way and to be taken advantage of. And, you know, all, all of the, uh, all of the shame and whatnot aside, what I, what I learned after reflecting back on that experience is that even today in 2020, people are being um, kind of manipulated and taken in. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's a complicated thing, right? Because at the same time, while it was a very uh, tough experience that I, that I went through, at the same time, it taught me a lot of things that helped me get through other things. Like ever since I've been through that experience, not only can I smell that type of manipulation coming from a mile away, even if it's not a pyramid scheme, mm-hmm. it could just be a person who's just, you know, abusive or manipulative yeah. or, you know, uh, trying to trying to do something that is deceptive. I have a much better kind of radar for that now. And I'm very glad that I have it because doing my day job working at a university, I've even heard of, of some of the students I work with getting approached for these things. So now that I know the sign, oh, like I can at least kind of warn them. Or something different. Yeah. Uh, not the same thing, but similar model, similar approach, the same mm-hmm. type of behavior where they, you know, uh, take something vulnerable and then turn it back on you and all of that. Uh, yeah. But I think to your point about the healing process and the pro and con of it, it I, I think it would be very one-dimensional to think that it's it's only one thing. These kind of formal seminal experiences in our lives they they can take on a lot much a lot more 
And uh, it does take a long time to kind of unpack all of that. And I think that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to really, like, I mean, it was blocked out of my mind for years, but eventually I came to embrace it. I actually made, in my senior year of college, I made a book project that was, it was very similar to this. It was pretty much recounting how we're most malleable when we are so, when when we're at our lowest. That's right. And it was kind of, it was almost like, oh, doing this for a friend thing. But it was actually like about my experiences. And right. I, I actually talked to another friend who was part of that too. And we um, we combined our stories and we made this into a book project for school. And everyone, I, I'm pretty sure everybody knew that it was definitely not for a friend. <laughs> it was definitely about like, this definitely happened to you. Like even the professor was, very very skeptical <laughs> um i i don't know i i went through some like i don't know this that's so it's a crazy crazy shit and yeah. it i know that um it still happens right now like um one of the people from this group actually convinced a huge population of this community that she actually did become i i think it was like a mermaid or something and oh. disappeared and people i i found like years later i found a you like some youtube videos and people talking about her like did you ever hear what happened to her like she actually did it like she actually made it work and it's just insane how much of an impact that she had on this community and years later people still believe it and i was there when they were concocting the whole thing and it's just really it's just you have to be so smart to be able to do that stuff and it's it's really sad i don't know i it's a it's an idea that I do think about making for a graphic novel in the future, maybe about the perspective of starting a cult from the cult leader's perspective. Like how how do you know when it goes out of spiral? How do you know when it spirals? And like when do you know that it's gotten so bad that you have to stop? But it's like an anti-hero story. I don't know what it's really going to be about, but we'll see. I think that could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Anti-heroes are very popular these days. Yeah, yeah. I, I th- we got BoJack and everyone. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So, you know, pivoting from from that, uh, I do have questions. <laughs> it's a huge pivot. <laughs> huge pivot, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a late-night talk show host, so I don't have seamless transitions. Um, oh, it's fine. I, I, did, uh, I did chat with a friend of mine who is a, a artist as well. And uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to to include a question that she had, which is, you know, oh. from your perspective as a as a as a creative artist and as someone who has practiced in a lot of different mediums, do you think it's possible to be a Jack or Jane of all trades, or should one f- solely focus on just one art discipline or medium? You mean like pencil versus digital versus? Right. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's such a good question because I struggle with this every single day. Um, I have what you would, what people would say a lot of different styles. Like I don't really, I, I have no idea how to describe my style, but I just get bored of my, the way I do something so easily. But I found that I think people are known for uh, like a couple of things. and. 
or artists are known for one of a few things and I, this is just from my own observation but you're either known for your ability to tell a story or you're known for your ability to use a medium so insanely well and there are people who can do both um like i'm thinking like jillian tamaki who like she's the first person who came up in my mind mm. but she is a graphic she's like a she's a cartoonist um she's illustrated with her cousin uh, mariko tamaki um and they've won like they they've just gotten a lot of like recognition for their work but her style is just like it just like changes a lot um sometimes her lines are super smooth and i think lately it's been more like kind of hatchy hairy lines but people still just like love her because of the way she tells stories and just like the style of her work um it's really hard to describe and you have like people who are so like who are just known for like their immense ridiculous pieces like james jean who like in makes these insane paintings like i don't know if you've ever seen his work in especially in person but they're just insane like i went to one of his shows in korea and just like by accident and it was just like a hallway full of paintings and um he like he did some stuff for like prada and um like shape of water and mother and blade runner it's just it he just made all those movie posters anyway but i think it's good i found that i'm over time as i'm experimenting with different mediums that i have gotten a little more comfortable in a certain way of drawing i i think it's always good to experiment but i think what's really important is the way you tell a story hmm. it's it's I don't I wish I could have phrased this much more eloquently, but I don't know. I lately I've been more into using very dry medium, I like kind of a mix of rendering and line work. Mm. Um I just love doing both and I think there could be a really interesting combination if done correctly. Like that's kind of how animation like 2D animation works where the foreground is line work and the background is can be pretty rendered. Like I'm thinking Studio Ghibli does it really, really well. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. So that's kind of actually how I'm approaching the graphic novel right now is like the people are all line work, but the backgrounds are like rendered pencil drawings. Hmm. Um, it's I, I think I, I think it'll I think it'll work out. But I really love experimenting with different kinds of mediums um but you know usually those aren't really successful and some of them do work out but i think overall um to answer the question <laughs> uh i'm just all over the place today and whatever you make and put on your portfolio a client might see that and ask you to do something similar so if you have a bunch of different styles and you love experimenting a lot, you might be asked to replicate one of the styles. And if you don't like that way, it's just, you might not be excited making that piece. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So for example, it's like what you draw. So if you have like, if you draw cars because everyone is drawing cars, you put them on your portfolio, 
but you hate drawing cars. Like they're so complicated and weird looking. Right. You're probably going to have a lot of clients who will ask you, can you draw a car for me? And you're going to be like, what the hell? And, but that's what you put in your portfolio. Right. Um, so I think in the long, I think in the short term, it's always great to experiment and it's, it is how you will grow as an artist over time instead of being pigeonholed into one style. But it's having this, having, um, how do I phrase this? Oh my gosh, this is such a difficult <laughs> question, okay. but in a good way. I think we're but, getting there. We're um, getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. My, my mind gears are turning very slowly and they're picking up speed. Um, the way you, yeah. So experimenting is always good. And you might think that your style is all over the place, but to somebody else, it might not be. It might, because I've been told that the way I draw is actually recognizable. But I don't think so at all. Like I, I don't see how any drawings that I do are similar in the slightest. But what I do know is when I draw something really differently, I know, I know at the end, do I want to keep drawing like this, or does this? Do I want this to be a one-time thing? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, am I excited about drawing? If I, if I love drawing portraits, like I love drawing portraits, but I don't want to draw portraits for the rest of my life like rendered portraits like that's just not it's fun but it's not what i want to do right um but even though i have a rendered portrait in my portfolio i probably would be expecting a client to ask me like hey can you do a rendered portrait like you did over here yeah. so it's about what what kind of work you want to be asked to do that is the most concise answer i can give <laughs> well after like jumping from left to right <laughs> you know we took a walk around the block know. but we got there and you know i think that's okay because that's that's the type of response that's informed by you know the the years that you've been doing this and just the the possibilities of what someone might ask you based on what you put out there right so if you yeah if you hate absolutely. doing something but you're broadcasting that you're able to do it and it's in an easily discoverable place where people are likely to look at it. Um, it shouldn't be surprising that someone's going to ask you to do it. Therefore, uh, in, it, sh it could be helpful to have a mix of the things that you really like, along with maybe some of the things that is that that are client work pieces, um, just to show that you have range. But maybe don't make that the majority of what your portfolio is, so people don't confuse that you actually like doing something that you don't. Yeah, I mean, even when you're, I mean, I, I think I mentioned this, but when you're experimenting so much, you're going to find something that you like, that you gravitate towards, you know, like I, like whether it's one thing or if it's a mix of things, like you're going to find something new that if you keep experimenting, you're going to find something new that someone else or very few people have done before. And that'll make you more noticeable in the, in the market. I agree with that, you know, for myself. I, yeah. I struggle a lot because, you know, I growing up the way that I did, I just never felt like I was good enough or deserved to do anything mm -hmm. that was creative because that doesn't pay the bills. Um, the irony of that being is that, you know, I spent what little disposable income I had going to concerts, um, watching a lot of movies, yeah. going going to museums and like consuming a lot of creative, you know, output. 
Um, so yeah. now in my thirties, I'm, I'm trying to find a kind of a middle road where I, I do have responsibilities that I'm choosing to take on. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that, mm-hmm. you know, as adults, no matter what age you are, or as a young person, it's okay to have passions and not every passion needs to be something that's easily identifiable as, as one uh, medium or modality. If you choose to do yeah. it as a, as a professional occupation, then yes, having some direction and some focus and doing it in an informed way would help. Um, but if your life happens to be in a place where it's a mix of things, that's totally fine too. Oh yeah. I mean, I know what people mean when they say like, when you, okay, let, you know what? let me backtrack. When people say, when you do something that you love, it's, it might not be a good idea to take that on as like, as your full job, because then it, you're just going to lose passion in right. it, which happens. And I feel that I like, I, when I was working at in tech and working like similar in your situation, like working on other things after I almost said after school, after work, (laughs) you, it just gets tiring and you just kind of lose the creative juice. But I don't know. I don't know where I was going with this, but basically it's always good to have a passion that's more than just your job or your other job or your third job. I don't know. I had two jobs. I had so many jobs like while I was working in tech, it was just consuming everything that i had so let's go to the decaf yeah. option now that we've gotten through a lot of heavy a lot of interesting and a lot of informative <laughs> stuff um so yes. what who is deb outside of being the artist and the illustrator you know what oh what gives you life so I'll, i can start um i love sure, i love it. learning about drag um about makeup and hair and all that Amazing. I recently yes. dyed my hair for the first time. Oh my god, that shit hurts! Oh, what color? Jesus! What color? Oh my god, I wanted to do like a Golden Girls gray, but it ended up turning like oh, K-pop it. blonde. <laughs> but then they dyed oh, wait, it to the what's root, the, what's the and that shit burned, man. Oh my god! Oh wait, what's the difference between the two colors that you wanted versus the one that you got? Oh, so the the hair I wanted literally was like gray, like Ajima, like gray you know working 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 the bcd gray like (laughs) with the perm but i ended up getting like a you know g dragon you know not not obviously looking like g dragon but like you know that kind of a blonde kind of moment the platinum platinum yeah i got platinum blonde instead of you know ajima gray and uh you know Mm -hmm. then i started watching a lot of youtube stuff about hair maintenance and different shampoo stuff um, I, I love style and fashion stuff, but, you know, identifying as, as a hetero male, I have learned to really appreciate the art of drag, the amount of effort and art and performance and the amount of talent that a performer has to have. Oh, it's so hard. Oh my God. Yeah. They have to be, you know, like you ha- whole thing. So good. Yeah. yeah it's just everything. It's just so, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I need to go to more drag shows. Yeah. Um, 2020 resolution. There you go. But, um. What do I do? Uh, good question. Haha. <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, up until now, my like honestly, my eight a.m.s all the way to my three a.m.s was just art, 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 mm. art. Um, so I didn't really have time to you know get into a whole other stuff. But now, now that it's been the holidays and I got a chance to sleep, um, I so I've always been 
into running. I've always loved lifting and exercising. I try to fit, I've been trying to fit in at least two half marathons a year. So I'm running my first one. I'm running my first one of 2020 with my boyfriend in March in Oakland. So it's like right outside our house. So it'd be super easy to get to. Um, But it's just my way of clearing my brain. I mean, I actually started running, really running when I was so, so depressed Mm. in my senior year. Like I would do insanity too. Um, the workout. Oh, I passed out. And I just, (laughs) what? I passed out doing that. Oh, really? Oh my, I mean, I've almost passed out, but it's so hard. Like, I I don't know. Like it's, I don't blame you. It's, it's, it's insane. (laughs) It's insanity. (laughs) um, I, so yeah, I'm really into, um, I'm really into fitness. Mm. Um, what else am I into? I, I started getting into like a little bit of light gaming. Um, when I say gaming, I mean like Pokemon, Stardew Valley, Animal Crossing. I I'm not into Animal Crossing as I mu- as much as I used to be. Yeah. I just have you ever played Stardew Valley though? No, I was. Uh, I mean, I used to play a lot of Harvest Moon. Oh sure, it's pretty similar. Yeah. But um, yeah, I know Star- Stardew Valley. I logged 300 hours in 2019. It was, re- I, I don't know how I did Impressive. it, even though I had so much stuff to do, yeah. but it was just, I mean, it's also impressive that like it was made by one person in Seattle. Wow. The entire thing, like the, he, he taught himself how to draw, he taught himself how to make music and story and he already knew how to code. So he just made the entire game and i I bet that guy, I bet, I think his name is Eric. I bet Eric is like a millionaire right now. Yeah. So living his best life. But yeah, um, I just, I, over the holidays, I beat um, Pokemon Shield. I'm now champion. Impressive. Which is very important. (laughs) Um, But no, I, I, I I just want to get better at relaxing. Um, I, I'm just so, as people describe type A, like, Whenever I take on a new project, my boyfriend, um, Carson, is always like, when am I ever going to see you again? Yeah. Like, you're just going <laughs> to disappear. And I said, that's right. Um, and once Animal Crossing comes on March, you'll never see me again. Right. Uh, uh, but yeah, I I guess that's my goal for the, this upcoming decade is to have a life. Um, that's why I went freelance is so I can... In, like use my 8 a.m.s to 6 p.m.s just working not like all day and then work out from like six to seven and then just like spend a few more hours with friends or with Carson and I don't know be a normal person I guess while you know finishing like two books um by the end of the year so insane um yeah so I have the graphic novel and the HarperCollins one is actually, I, I think I think this will be announced by the time this episode is released, um, but I'm working on another comic. I'm working on another graphic novel with HarperCollins about um, these kids that are escaping this North Korea mm. uh, that's coming out in 2023, I believe, 2022. Um, so I'm working in tandem. I'm working on two books and I calculated how long it, it will take me to do the first book and i realized that every page doesn't take you be seven hours to do so that's like two thousand three hundred hours wow 
of just working on this book and I'm actually, and I, I'm a little scared, yeah. honestly, about, am I going to finish this? So if it's not 2021, fall 2021, it might be spring 2022, but who knows? Um, I just wanted to do my best on this. I think you're going to get there. Um, and you know, uh, we'll see. You know, <laughs> and, and in contrast, you know, to 2300 hours 300 hours on a game is really not too bad <laughs> you know i mean I, my brother is so <laughs> he just like played counter-strike all the time and yeah. he's just like yeah 300 hours that's like yeah it's average bro or whatever he says yeah. um but yeah i think 300 hours like is it's uh how would, you, how would you say it? it's it's a rookie number? Yeah, I've spent, I think I've probably spent 300 hours playing this freemium. Um, it's kind of like a tower defense game on the on the phone. It's called Battle Cats. Uh-huh. Um, it's produced by Ponos, which is like this Japanese game company uh, on the east side of Japan, or west side of Japan, actually, like Kyoto, Osaka area. Um, I only know this because when I went to Japan for the first time with my girlfriend last year, we were like, literally a mile away from the headquarters and didn't know it until we had already left. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and no! they had like limited edition oh. merch, like a cute plush and shit. <gasps> uh, but I did find like oh, a little gotcha okay. machine. So we got some keychains from it. I actually have a, a painting of that. My girlfriend did of one of the favorite characters I have of the game on my apartment wall. Um, so yeah, games, games serve their purpose. It's for me- It's self care. It's mental wellness. It, if it's yeah. de-stresses, then I think it's all good. Um, and for your books, I mean, also a point of escapism. Yeah, yeah, it's just a vehicle. Like, right? I, yeah, like I want to like farm like cauliflower all day. Like, I want to take care of my pigs and that's right. Fight monsters. I still have no idea how to take care of a turnip farm, but I, I sure as hell, you know, tilled <laughs> the soil for God knows how many hours and put rocks into a bin that could just hold millions of them, but. <laughs> Hey. Oh yeah! Oh, for real! It it's like pulling out a refrigerator from your pocket yeah. in Animal Crossing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, oh, gave me an apple. Here's a here's a couch. Thanks. Right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I uh, I heard Harvest Moon has gotten not so good lately. Like I've never played Harvest Moon, but I've been hearing that the older versions are. Better. Oh yeah, Game Boy, Game Boy for sure. Um, I didn't even play the mobile versions. I tried playing a new one. My brother gave me his old uh, 3DS, and it was like 45 minutes oh, of explainers. Nice. It's like just give me the fucking <gasps> give me the fucking shovel so I can just uh, remove the weeds from the ground. Skip, skip, skip. Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah, I love it. So on an ending note, uh, I think we've we've had mm-hmm. a very nice exploratory conversation. You're definitely a well-rounded human being that's lived a very eclectic life and have found different ways to express <laughs> yourself. Thank you. Um, so you know, for folks that may be listening to this, that may aspire to do some of the things that you are currently doing or have already done, um, whether they're um, a, a artist in the making, whether they're a, a creative professional, um, or if they're just someone from uh, an Asian American perspective that is trying to go into a space that is not necessarily well-defined or well-accepted, um, what would you say to those folks? And, you know, it doesn't have to be advice, but from your perspective, you know, if you were to sit down with him, give him a, a quick, a quick kind of pep talk, what would you say? I would say that it's never too late to do something. I mean, I say this as, you know, like someone who, you know, is turning 20, 24 soon, but which is really young um, for like, actually, but 
it's never too late to switch. It's never too late to pick up something that you've been thinking about. I mean, some of the best illustrators that like, who, like some of the best illustrators in this generation right now, like they switched from something to illustration in their like thirties or forties and they're making it big. They just, if you are so excited to do something and you put your everything into it, you prove to yourself, you will prove to yourself that you have what it takes to do it because it's not because, you know, your school told you to do it or your parents told you to do it. I mean, I don't know how many Asian parents there are who tell their kids that you have to do art, but um, if you do it and you put your all into it, then you are good enough. That's a good ending note. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I wish I, well, I mean, I'm glad this is recorded so I can listen to it. Um, <laughs> that's that's said, your uh, dropping, that's your dropping the microphone moment right there. Or my AirPods, dropping my AirPods. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I don't have a mic. Uh, so to conclude everything, uh, if people want to interact with you, learn more about your art, where can they find you, Deb? Um, you can find me on Inst- on Insta or uh, Twitter um, at J like J D E B B I E L. Um, it's like J. I, I like to say it's J W L. Like J stands for my. Um, Korean name, which is Jungjin, and then Debbie, which I actually don't like going by, and then L is for my last name, so JWL was would be good. I mean, if you want to email me, it's hello at debliart.com, or my portfolio is debliart.com. So, yeah, I I probably just that's pretty much it. I think. Cool. Well, thank you again for yeah. taking the time. I had a lot of fun today. And uh, I, I think people so are going to get a kick out of it. Uh, thank you to uh, my buddy Dave, who produced uh, the song for this podcast uh, very graciously, and my buddy Jackie, who produced all the artwork for it. And of course, thank you, Deb, for your time, your uh, your intention, and your candor. Uh, have a, uh, a great night, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me.